Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The White House saying today that punishment for Russia for the death of Alexei Navalny is on the way. The lead starts right now. The new warning from the Biden administration, tough new sanctions on Russia for both the war in Ukraine and for the suspicious death of Putin's prominent critic, Alexei Navalny. This, as the Kremlin insists, Navalny's remains cannot be released. Why not? Might there be traces of poison in his system? Well, his mother's demanding answers, and CNN is in Moscow, as we also learn of another new prisoner jailed in Russia. This one a, wo- a woman with dual U.S.-Russian citizenship being punished. And what are the charges against her? Plus, what sources are now telling CNN about President Biden's new aggressive plan to go after the, quote, crazy shit that Donald Trump says, that expletive from the Biden source, not from me. Exactly how Biden wants to push back, that's ahead. And Alabama now classifying frozen embryos as people. The state's Supreme Court Chief Justice writing in a ruling, quote, Life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God, unquote. Yes, that is the legal language used. Coming up, the liability this creates for doctors and patients desperately trying to conceive. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead. The White House is getting ready to impose what it calls a major sanctions package against Russia. This after one of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics died under suspicious circumstances in prison last week. Assistant to the president, John Kirby, says the new U.S. sanctions will be officially announced Friday. They are designed not only to, quote, hold Russia accountable for what happened to Alexei Navalny, but also to punish Russia for its military operations in Ukraine, operations that will hit the two-year mark on Saturday. In a video released earlier today, Navalny's mother stood in front of the penal colony where he died, pleading with Putin to let her see her son's body. They won't give me his body. They don't even tell me where he is. This news comes just as we are learning that a U.S.-Russian dual citizen has been detained in Russia. Russian authorities say a 33-year-old woman who lives in Los Angeles has been charged with treason. She's accused of raising money to help Ukrainian forces. And we should note, of course, she's far from the only person with American citizenship currently detained by Moscow. Today, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich appeared in court after nearly a year's imprisonment. Russian-American journalist Alsu Kormasheva is also still being held. U.S. Marine veteran Paul Whelan still behind bars, having served more than five years at a Russian prison camp. CNN's Matthew Chance is in the Russian capital of Moscow. And Matthew, how will the Kremlin likely respond to these new sanctions coming from the U.S.? Well, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has already given an initial response when he was asked about the possibility of more sanctions from the U.S. He said, I don't think about uh, anything about them at all. I mean, look, Russia has obviously criticized the sanctions regime that's been ratcheted up over the past several years by the United States and others in the international community. But it's now the most heavily sanctioned country in the world. 
and it's unlikely, more sanctions, unlikely to have a significant impact, any impact at all, perhaps, on the country's policy. It's certainly not going to encourage uh, the Kremlin, uh, the expectation is at least, to do more to show uh, more clarity when it comes to what happened to Alexei Navalny, uh, especially uh, after uh, his own mother, Ludmila Navalny, has travelled 2,000 miles uh, or so uh, to the Arctic north of Russia to stand outside that penal colony where he died on Friday and ask the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, directly to release her son's remains to her. Take a listen. I haven't been able to see him for five days. They won't give me his body. They don't even tell me where he is. I'm addressing you, Vladimir Putin. The solution to the issue depends only on you. Let me finally see my son. I demand that Alexei's body be immediately handed over so that I can bury him humanely. Well, that appeal is something that's supported by um, the Russian public as well, in the sense that there's a petition that's been making the rounds uh, online that's been signed by tens of thousands of people. And that's an act of bravery, remember, because people have to put their names and their emails and their addresses when they uh, uh, put their names on a public petition like this, calling for the body of Navalny to be released immediately to his family, Jake. And Matthew, what can you tell us about this dual U.S.-Russian citizen who is being detained on treason charges? Yeah, this is a citizen, 33-year-old resident of um, Los Angeles normally, but she's a, a joint U.S.-Russian citizen. Uh, she's been named as Senya uh, Karolina, uh, 33 years old, and she's been charged uh, with treason now. Um, and the, the specifics of that charge, uh, it, not got much detail from the prosecution service, but they're saying basically she was raising funds for Ukraine, uh, funds that were later used to buy medical supplies and weapons uh, to be used in the in the war in Ukraine, what Russia, of course, calls its special uh, military operation. And that's illegal. She's been um, she's been put under arrest uh, by agents of the Russian FSB, the old KGB, and she faces um, so sort of that trial in the months ahead, uh, of course, as you mentioned, she's not the only U.S. citizen that uh, has been in court over the course of the past 24 hours. Uh, Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter, also accused of, of espionage. Um, he went to court today and had his appeal to his uh, the extension of his prison of his uh, term in prison. Um, he had that rejected. So he'll be in prison up until March. And that will make it a year since Evan Gershkovich uh, was arrested on those espionage uh, charges. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Moscow, thanks so much. All of this, of course, is happening as Russian forces are advancing on multiple parts of Ukraine, fueled uh, by their recent victory in the key eastern city of Avdivka. Today, Ukraine's foreign minister told CNN's Christiana Mampour that Ukraine would not have lost control of that city if the U.S., and specifically the Congress, had delivered the military aid still tied up in the halls of Congress. Ahead of that interview, Christian visited a military cemetery in western Ukraine where an overwhelming number of Ukrainian families are grappling with the losses of their loved ones in Putin's war. At first, it looks beautiful. All the colors, the sheer density flying in the wind, so much Ukrainian yellow and blue. But when you realize that each flies above the body of a beloved, the pain is palpable. A mother cries for her son. He came from Poland, from abroad, says Lyubov. He went to liberate our Ukraine. He said, Mom, I'm going to defend you. A woman seems to be talking to her fallen loved one. 
And this widow, Natalia, moves in for a kiss. Her husband, who had volunteered for the Eastern Front, was killed just shy of his 30th birthday five months ago, when shrapnel hit his head, leaving her and her small children alone. I'm proud of my husband because his sacrifice is worth a lot, says Natalia. I believe that it's the duty of every man to defend his homeland. Having three children, he could have not gone, but understood that he was going to defend us. Lichakiv Cemetery in the western city of Lviv is like cemeteries all over Ukraine today. Two years ago, this was a grass field. Today, it's a field of flags and the graves of those who've fallen defending this country. And on this two-year anniversary, families are asking whether Ukraine can continue leaving it up to their volunteers or whether there needs to be a call-up to mobilize for the front. Natalia agrees. Yes, definitely, she says, because if we don't defend ourselves, what kind of fate awaits us next? And if we don't defend our lands, Russia will be here soon. In the center of Lviv, there is a small recruitment office for the Army's 3rd Assault Brigade, just through this courtyard. Sergeant Pavlo Dokin is in charge, and he shows us in. So, Pavlo, this is the recruitment office, the recruitment center, yeah? It is exhausting, not only physically, but also for morale. Soldiers need to have normal rotations, Pavlo tells me, so that they can rest from all of that and start working with renewed vigor. The office is open all week, sometimes a few show up, sometimes none. While we were there, just one. Why do you want to be in the military? Someone needs to defend our Ukraine, says Volodymyr a 43-year-old builder. And that's the point. Starting a third year of full-scale war against the Russian invasion, they are heavily outmanned, and vital weapons and ammunition for their fight are tangled up in Washington's political gridlock under former President Donald Trump's direction. Speaking to world leaders in Munich this past weekend, President Zelensky said he'd invite him to see the war with his own eyes. If Trump, Mr. Trump, if he will come, I, I'm ready even to go with him to the front line. Back at the 3rd Assault Brigade, this poster says, rush to the decisive battle. And they did that this weekend, just as the small town of Avdivka in the east was falling, to help withdraw forces before they could be encircled by the Russians. At least then they could live to fight another day. President Zelensky told me for every Ukrainian killed in that battle, there were seven Russian deaths. I'm telling you frankly, we don't have long-range weapons. Russia has it and we have too little of that. That's true. That's why our main weapon today is our soldiers, our people. Back at the cemetery in Lviv, the people, the bereaved, say the nation needs a new call-up if it can properly arm them. I would say they should, says Lyubov, but only if they had weapons. The guys have no weapons, they have nothing to fight with. Believe me, my child used to buy his own uniform with his own money. And here, more ground is already being prepared. The fight for freedom and democracy will be bloody 
hard and long. And Jake, two years on, you do still feel the unity, but you do really feel the anxiety, the exhaustion, uh, the worry that they're going to be left doing this on their own. Uh, it's an incredibly different feeling than it was a year ago, uh, even, even you know, a month after the initial invasion, when they did manage to push Russian forces back. Jake? And Christiane, today you interviewed the Ukrainian foreign minister about the status of the war. And while he said he, yeah. he wanted to stay out of American politics, he, he did have some really grim assessments of how the fighting in Congress over Ukraine aid and the opposition to Ukraine aid among Republicans uh, is affecting Ukrainian troops on the front lines. Exactly. And, you know, also the White House said it, John Kirby said it. And this is how I put it and how Kuleba put it to me. All of this time, our soldiers will be sacrificing their lives at the front line, holding up against uh, an overwhelming force of Russia. They, they are making miracles, and they must be credited for that. But the reason they have to sacrifice themselves and die is because someone is still debating a decision. And I respect domestic politics. We do not interfere into it. But I just want everyone to remember that every day of debate in one place means another death, a death in another place. And you know, very bluntly, he said to me that the loss of Avdivka could be directly attributed to the lack of artillery shells and that kind of ammunition and the artillery that they needed. So it is very, very dire. And look, I've spoken to American military experts, former commanders, and they've said Ukraine can win. It just depends on the political will of its allies in the West. All right, Christiane, I'm poor in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. We're also following another major conflict, the war between Israel and Hamas, which is creating dire scenes of starvation in Gaza right now. An emergency measure was just put in place because of it. Uh, we're we're going to go live to the region next. Back with our world lead today, the United Nations Food Program is holding off sending more aid trucks into Gaza after two straight days of chaos. Officials described crowds of hungry people swarming caravans both Sunday and Monday, adding some convoys were met with, quote, complete violence. CNN's Nick Robertson reports that the temporary pause likely only worsens this spile of desperation and in many cases affecting Gaza's youngest. Gaza's food problem writ large. Hunger trumping fear of Israeli bullets. News of a coming aid convoy carrying flour into the north of Gaza, converging crowds to plunder it. We came here for the flour because we don't have food to eat at home, Hamza Nar says. It's been five months since we tasted the white flour. Desperation leading to looting, a growing problem in northern Gaza. We're talking tens and tens of thousands um, for, uh, you know, five, ten trucks. Um, it's uh, the food that is getting through is um, it's just a drop in the ocean. It's not nearly enough. Um, so, of course, um, that's going to happen. Thefts so bad, the principal UN food supplier, the WFP, declaring Tuesday it will stop deliveries to the north, compounding the already dire conditions, particularly for young children. It's now at an emergency level. The most common thing that comes into hospital is malnutrition, Dr. Abu Safia says. It creates complications, sometimes even death. 
Even before the World Food Programme cancelled food deliveries, children venting fears shared by adults. Abandonment by the world. No food, no water, no medicine. Our message to the world, shame on, shame on you. How dare you food your children while we eat animal food? Are you waiting our death? The whole family is dead, um, Ibrahim wails. Is he the last one alive? Gesturing towards her grandson. As bad as hunger is, Israel's armaments remain more deadly. At Um Ibrahim's home in Nusrat, central Gaza, one granddaughter dug out of the rubble, killed in the massive airstrike. Another clings to life as rescuers give her CPR. In southern Gaza, where food supplies are slightly better, this plastic surgeon, just out of the besieged Al Nasser hospital in Han Yunis, close to tears. I couldn't offer anything to my children. We used to eat only, you know, only bread. My children, they want some, su some sweets. I couldn't provide some sweets for my children. My little, my little girl, three years old, she used to ask me many things, but I couldn't provide my little girl. So just to give you an idea of how precarious the humanitarian supplies are and what gives the UN and other agencies cause for concern, the main crossing from Israel into Gaza today, Karim Shalom, that was blocked by protesters saying that the food was going to Hamas and not to the civilians there. Um, uh, just yesterday, when the crossing was open, 131 trucks got through. That's quite a difference. All right, Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv. The Grim Report, thank you so much. Just in, we are learning of new charges linked to that deadly shooting at last week's Super Bowl celebration in Kansas City. What authorities are now saying about the actions of two men that led to a moment of mayhem and at least one woman killed. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.
Just into the lead, two men have been charged with murder for their alleged roles in the mass shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs uh, Super Bowl rally last week. Uh, let's get straight to CNN's Josh Campbell. Josh, what do we know about these two suspects? Yeah, Jake, a significant development. Since last Wednesday, authorities have been poring over this massive crime scene, interviewing witnesses, looking at CCTV, conducting ballistic analysis on numerous firearms that were recovered. And they now, prosecutors believe they have enough evidence to charge these two men with murder. The two individuals, Lindell Mays and Dominic Miller, both stand accused with the same charges, murder in the second degree. If convicted, they face up to life in prison. A second charge includes unlawful use of a weapon, specifically shooting at people. If convicted, they face up to 15 years on those charges. Now, CNN is attempting to determine whether either individual has attorney representation. We are learning from prosecutors more about the timeline, about what happened, what was occurring just before shots rang, rang out there on that day. Authorities say that one individual, uh, Lindell Mays, was in some type of verbal altercation with another individual. Mays then allegedly pulled his weapon. At that same time, near simultaneously, the prosecutor says multiple people pulled their weapons. Shots start ringing out. We do know that one individual who was among uh, those injured did die. That's Lisa Lopez Galvan. Authorities say based on ballistics, they believe the second individual, Dominic Miller, was the individual who fired that fatal shot. Interesting, interestingly, Jake, these two individuals not only in custody, but still in the hospital. Both of these men were injured uh, during the shooting as well. Now, authorities say that although they are bringing these charges, their work is far from over. Have a listen. I do want you to understand we seek to hold every shooter accountable for their actions on that day. Every single one. And authorities believe there are potential other suspects still out there that they're working to locate. Finally, Jake, authorities are appealing to the public. They know how many people were shot on that day. What they don't know is how many people faced injuries as they were fleeing this chaotic scene. They want to hear from you, which tells us that authorities continue to build this case, trying to hold anyone accountable who's responsible for what occurred that day. All right, Josh Campbell, thank you so much. Uh, staying with our law and justice lead. Uh, two huge U.S. Supreme Court orders involving Donald Trump could come down literally at any moment. One, whether Trump can be removed from Colorado's primary ballot based on the 14th Amendments to the Constitution, its ban on insurrectionists from holding higher office. The second issue deals with Trump's claim that he is immune from prosecution for acts he took while he was president. Let's discuss with CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, when could we find out what's going to happen with the presidential immunity case and, and walk us through what the outcomes might be? Well, Jake, we could hear at any moment whatsoever because this is technically an emergency motion. So it's not necessarily going to be released on the court's ordinary calendar. Now, here are the potential outcomes. Best case scenario for Jack Smith, the Supreme Court will say, we're not hearing this case. We're sending it back down to the district court, at which point I think the district court judge, the trial judge, Judge Tuckin, would probably set a trial date as soon as she could, I think likely for the end of spring or early summer. Now, Worst case scenario for Jack Smith, the Supreme Court says, we are taking this case, we are keeping the stay, the pause on the trial court, and we're gonna take the normal several months of briefing, the normal course of deliberation. That would probably have the effect of moving the trial out till likely after the election is over. There's also a middle ground possibility here, Jake, where the Supreme Court says, we are gonna take this case, but we're gonna do it on a sped up expedited basis, which could still allow some possibility if they reject the immunity argument, that the trial could still happen before the election. What about a decision on the Colorado ballot ban case? The Super Tuesday primaries are just a couple weeks away. 
Yeah, Jake. Well, I think the Supreme Court has to understand that Colorado set to vote in two weeks and various other states are waiting to see what the Supreme Court does. We covered that oral argument together. I think it's quite clear that Donald Trump will be reinstated to the ballot in Colorado. And the reason is the justices just do not believe that the law allows the individual states to interpret and apply the 14th Amendment. I think the only outstanding question here other than when is, will we see several of the liberal justices join here? We could even see, in my view, potentially a 9-0 decision. You recently wrote an article on what you say is, in your view, the biggest revelation from that damning report from special counsel Robert Hur on President Biden's mishandling of classified documents. You say the biggest deal is not how he's described as kind of this addled old man. You say, but rather, quote, Biden held on to classified, top secret national security documents after he left the vice presidency, and he did it intentionally, unquote. You're citing a part of the Her report saying that Biden knew he had classified documents as early as 2017. Yeah, Jake, he knew. He knew. That is the biggest legal revelation to me. And we know that, by the way, it's not even arguable because there's a tape. Joe Biden is on tape telling his ghostwriter in February 2017, the month after he leaves the vice presidency, Joe Biden says, quote, I just found all the classified stuff downstairs. He's referring to the office in his private residence in Virginia at the time. So we know that Joe Biden knew he had classified documents in 2017, failed to turn them back into the authorities, and the documents he's talking about relate to our policy, our military approach in Afghanistan. So, Jake, for the last year or so, Joe Biden, his lawyers, and his spokespeople have been telling us all a big accident, all inadvertent. He didn't know. Turns out he did know, and he did not turn over those documents immediately. He waited until just last year to do that. Special Counsel Hurst uh, expected to testify publicly at a House hearing on March 12th. What do we expect him to say? Well, it'll be interesting to see what approach he takes. If he follows the model of Robert Mueller, not much. If you remember when Robert Mueller testified, all he did was sort of reiterate the exact words in his report. But I do think when special counsel Hur testifies, it's going to be a real Rorschach moment. I think you're going to see the Republicans arguing that he should have recommended an indictment for Joe Biden. And I think you're going to see the Democrats arguing that there was no case whatsoever there. And I think they'll also criticize Robert Hur for the statements he made about Joe Biden's advanced age and memory. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the quote, wrath of a holy God used by Alabama's Supreme Court Chief Justice to justify a historic legal ruling that now classifies frozen embryos as children. Coming up, the consequences of that decision that could go well beyond the courts. In our health lead now, frozen embryos in Alabama now have the same legal rights as other unborn children, quote unquote. That historic and controversial ruling was issued by the Alabama Supreme Court last week. In a concurring opinion, Chief Justice Tom Parker invoked his religious beliefs, writing, quote, life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. Even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory, unquote. Now, there are growing concerns about the future of in vitro fertilization treatment in the state of Alabama. CNN's Meg Terrell joins me now. Uh, Meg, how did the court reach this decision? 
Well, Jake, so the story behind this case is essentially that these plaintiffs had undergone IVF and had stored uh, embryos uh, at a facility potentially for future use. They were being stored at this facility. Uh, allegedly, a patient who was staying at the same facility kind of got access to these embryos and accidentally dropped them. And so uh, that killed the embryos. Uh, now, these plaintiffs brought this suit under, uh, in one uh, aspect, the wrongful death of a minor act in Alabama. Now, that is a law that goes back to 1870. And of course, the question they were deciding here is, are these embryos essentially minors? Now, they also depended on a 2018 constitutional amendment in Alabama called the Sanctity of Unborn Life Amendment uh, to essentially say that, yes, the state has said that uh, unborn children uh, deserve the same protections as children. And they applied that to that 1872 law to essentially say, yes, these embryos are minors and you can bring this long wrongful death lawsuit on their behalf half, Jake. And in his dissent, uh, Justice Greg Cook writes, quote, no court anywhere in the country has reached the conclusion the main opinion reaches and the main opinions holding almost <clears throat> certainly ends the creation of frozen embryos through in vitro fertilization in Alabama. So how will this ruling impact couples seeking and, and doctors providing IVF treatment in Alabama? Well, this decision is rippling through the reproductive care community right now. I've talked with a number of doctors about this today. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine put out a statement about the decision saying, quote, the best state-of-the-art fertility care will be made unavailable to the people of Alabama. No health care provider, they say, will be willing to provide treatments if those treatments may lead to civil or criminal charges. Jake, I just got off the phone with a fertility doctor in Alabama, Dr. Mamie McLean. You know, she said she's committed to staying in the state. She loves Alabama, but she's been getting calls from dozens of her patients who have stored embryos right now who are completely anxious because they're worried they won't have control over what happens to those embryos anymore. And of course, there are huge questions about care with IVF going forward. All right, Meg Terrell, uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's bring in a legal expert on abortion here in the United States, Mary Ziegler. Mary, uh, in the majority opinion here of the Alabama Supreme Court, Associate Justice Jay Mitchell writes, quote, the people of Alabama have declared the public policy of the state to be that unborn human life is sacred we believe that each human being from the moment of conception is made in the image of God created by him to reflect his likeness, unquote. That sounds to me, I'm no legal expert, but it sounds less like a legal argument and more like a religious declaration. Um, what's your reaction? One of the things that's really striking about both the majority and the concurring opinion by the Chief Justice of the court is that this claim essentially that Alabama voters embraced Christianity, right? That Alabama voters wrote Christianity into the text of the Alabama Constitution. So there's no longer any daylight between church and state. There's no longer any daylight between religious teachings and constitutional law. And so I think it's right to read this opinion as saying we're going to see a lot more of this from the Alabama Supreme Court and maybe other state Supreme Courts like it going forward. The Medical Association of the state of Alabama warned that applying the wrongful death statute to in vitro embryos uh, would drive up the costs of IVF treatments. They also state, quote, more ominously, the increased rich risk of legal exposure might result in Alabama's fertility clinics shutting down and fertility specialists moving to other states to practice fertility medicine, unquote. Um, do you agree that this ruling will have that effect on IVF in Alabama? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think the current standard of care 
with IVF involves the creation of more embryos than would be implanted in a particular pregnancy. But if those embryos are persons, is that possible, right? You see anti-abortion lawyers arguing, for example, that if embryos are persons, each embryo created would need to be implanted, which would radically change the standard of care for IVF. It would make it much less effective and it would make it much less expensive. We've also seen in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade that Doctors are risk averse, right? Doctors don't want to open the door to devastating civil liability and potentially criminal charges. And there's no reason to expect that that's going to be any different now that this shadow has been cast over IVF in the state of Alabama. If a couple in Alabama is receiving fertility treatments such as IVF, if they become pregnant or if they decide they no longer wish to pursue IVF treatments, who decides right now what happens to those embryos? Can they be destroyed? Will they have to be maintained indefinitely under this new law? What is, is there any sort of guidance? Not really, right? So prior to this ruling, uh, couples would have a choice about whether they wanted to donate additional embryos for research, store them for potential future use, or have them destroyed, right? It's unclear what will happen under this ruling. It seems pretty clear that donating embryos for research or destroying them will be off the table if we view those embryos as persons you couldn't destroy persons or donate them for research. So that part goes without saying. But what exactly fertility clinics do need to do now in terms of whether they're allowed to store them indefinitely or required to, whether they're required to implant all of them right away, the ruling doesn't really go into that. And so I think it's also going to create a lot of legal uncertainty for fertility clinics and people who are pursuing in vitro fertilization in Alabama. How much of the abortion laws dealing with early pregnancy, so let's say the first trimester, are based in religious belief stated this way, as opposed to um, more legalistic arguments? Because it, it occurs to me that maybe this is just a more honest explanation of the pro-life slash anti-abortion position that they believe that this is what God believes. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? The anti-abortion movement is a big, diverse movement. I think the movement believes its own arguments about constitutional rights and personhood of a fetus or embryo or unborn child. I think at the same time, there's obviously a, a pretty big correlation, if not kind of causal component between religious beliefs, particularly Christian religious teachings in faith communities like evangelical Protestantism, fund Christian fundamentalism, certain strands of conservative Catholicism, and anti-abortion commitments. So I think this is sort of saying the quiet part out loud, but I think it's important to emphasize that some people in the anti-abortion movement are really committed to these legal arguments over and beyond their own religious beliefs. Are you concerned that this ruling raises any other ethical or legal implications? Well, I think it's certainly going to shift the Overton window in more ways than one. It's going to, I think, make it easier for state courts and even state legislators and other conservative states to take similarly aggressive steps on IVF. Um, somebody always has to be first. And now that the Alabama Supreme Court has done that, I think it's going to make it a lot easier for other conservatives to take aggressive steps on IVF in states that also embrace this idea of fetal personhood. Um, I think the ruling sets a precedent for being more explicit about embracing Christian religious 
his teachings as some kind of constitutional principle in states like Alabama. And I think it's another kind of brick in the wall of a strategy to make abortion illegal nationwide by declaring a fetus as a constitutional person for the purposes of constitutional law, federal constitutional law, and federal abortion law, which I think we've seen the anti-abortion movement pursuing. This is one piece of evidence they can point to to say states are already going in this direction. Federal constitutional law should too. Mary Ziegler, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, rather stunning details about a string of crimes. New York police say that a man beat a woman to death there in New York, and then he stabbed two other women in Arizona. And then, get this, he told police to Google the location of his crime. We're going to analyze these brutal cross-country assaults next. And we're back with more in our Law and Justice lead. A man who allegedly beat a woman to death with an iron in a New York City hotel is thankfully now in custody. Police say the 26-year-old man appears to be connected to two stabbings in Arizona and a kidnapping in Florida, all of them targeting women. And now the New York Police Department is working with the FBI to determine if there are any additional victims across the United States. Let's get right to CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, who's a former deputy police commissioner of the NYPD. John, we know that at any moment there are any number of serial killers in any country, including the United States. Walk us through how police determined that this suspect might be responsible for crimes all over the country and what the next steps are for authorities. Well, right now they're looking at him for the murder in New York, which he allegedly commits while he's out on bail for a alleged kidnapping and sexual assault in Florida and then ends up in Arizona. So in this case, they were able to tie him to this victim, I am told, by the victim's phone was missing. So they tracked the phone. The victim's credit card was missing. So they tracked the credit card. And I'm told investigators then were able to see him on video, match him to the person on video leaving the hotel, and then actually had him using his own credit card at a Burger King afterwards. And police also believe that he is wearing the victim's pants in these pictures because it's not the pants he walked into the hotel with according to investigators, and the victim's pants were missing. So it's, it's quite a bizarre case. But let's get a summary from New York City's chief of detectives, Joe Kenny. A broken iron was recovered at the scene and recovered bits of plastic that were found embedded inside of her skull. It seems there was, there was a dispute over the time he was allowed to stay in the room, and that's what caused the outburst, which caused the attack in Florida. It seems that if that involved more alcohol, they, he was drinking with the escort and then wouldn't let her leave. So that's what a kidnapping came in. So that's Chief Kenny describing the motive. So where do we go from here and how do they connect him if he is connected at all to any other crimes? Their concern is this is a spate of crimes in Florida, in New York, in Arizona, connected in a short period. In Arizona, he allegedly attempted to carjack a woman, then assaulted a McDonald's employee in the ladies' room with multiple stab wounds, um, then involved um, in a case where he's arrested in a stolen car. So what other crimes might they not know about? And that's where they go to the FBI. The Violent Crime Apprehension Program, or VICAP, is a nationwide computer database that tracks crimes the modus operandi of the crime, the offender characteristics, the similarities between victims. So you can input data and see what, what possible matches there are. And that's what they're asking the FBI to do, because as we learned from cases like the Gilgo Beach serial killer, 
a lot of these killers who are mobile, moving across the country, can avoid detection. Right now, these are the crimes he's charged with, but they're looking to see if there might be more. All right, John Miller, thanks for that. Appreciate it. Former Governor Nikki Haley is about an hour away from a second major event today in her home state of South Carolina. She made a major announcement in her first stop today saying she has no plans to get out of the 2024 presidential race. How's that going to work? I'm going to ask a guest who's helped run a presidential campaign coming up. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. People used to say I was running because I really wanted to be vice president. I think I've pretty well settled that question. And we're back with more on Governor Nikki Haley's big speech today. She says she's not going anywhere. She's vowing to stay in the race until the last voter votes. My panel joins me now to discuss. Uh, Karen, let's start with you. A big day for Nikki Haley. She said she's not going to follow in the footsteps of the other, quote, fellas. <laughs> By conceding uh, to Trump in the race, she is polling, and it's just a poll. It's not a, an election count, but it is a poll. 20 points behind Trump in her home state of South Carolina. Hmm? She isn't able to name a state where she might be able to beat Trump in a primary or caucus over the next several weeks. What do you make of her decision? Well, everybody is in it to win it till they're not. So, of course, this week leading into the primary, she's got to say she's in it as a way to try to motivate voters. But it's also a way to potentially preserve her options for, say, 2028, to say, I wasn't one of the ones who just got in line and followed along. I stood my ground. I stood tough. So hopefully she's thinking forward to her future and what, how she acts now. How will that impact her going forward? How much of her decision to stay in the race, do you think, is based on the possibility that Trump is convicted of a crime, and she wants to be there as a plan B for the GOP. That may be part of her calculation. I don't think that it is likely to turn out that way, even if the first piece of that equation happens. If for some reason Donald Trump can no longer be the Republican nominee, I think because of the very sharp criticisms that she has lobbed at him and knowing how popular he is within the party, if this were to go to a convention where the party has to choose someone different, I suspect that her brave new tone here on Donald Trump that has gotten much tougher over the last few weeks is actually not going to help her in that uh, sort of mission. Um, but I do think that it's positioning her as almost the new Chris Christie in the race, if you will, the person who says, I'm the only one that's bold enough, brave enough to stand up to Donald Trump. Um, maybe it's to try to say how many people in the party are not Trumpist, and she wants to be able to give them that ability to put their name on a ballot. Well, this is my question for you, based on what you just said about her standing her ground, being able to say, you know, that she, she you know, when the going got tough, she, that she, she was still Is that rewarded in the GOP these days, being a... <laughs> truth teller or is that punished it appears not to be oh however and you would know better than i kristen it does seem that there are republicans who believe that there will be a day after trump for the good of the country i hope that's true 
and that what is that part what does that version of the Republican Party look like? Who are those people? Who will lead that? I don't know when that's coming. I don't it does not appear that voters will reward her for that line of thinking. But it's possible. I mean, it's possible that there is the makings of, you know, another version of the Republican Party. This, see, I, I don't, there is something about Donald Trump and the GOP that I just don't see, I don't I have a difficult time envisioning the party moving on. He yeah. already lost, and the party's still not moving on. Right. Even if he loses again this November, assuming he's the nominee, I don't think the party's, I mean, first of all, he'll say that everyone cheated. Right. Uh, and he, I think he's going to stay as long as he can stand upright. I think that's likely. Um, you know, I, I completely agree that there are some Republicans, not a majority of the party, probably closer to 20, 25 percent, who do want this post-Trump GOP, and they are hoping after hope that it will emerge, and it will emerge soon. But They've been Jake, hoping for nine I, I'm years. with you. I, I feel right. like at a certain and point, you know, there was a moment shortly after, I recall very specifically, right after January 6th, where someone like me really thought, okay, this is the moment. This is the rock bottom, right? This is if the GOP is going to break up with Donald right, Trump. Deadly insurrection. On, right. This will be it. And as we saw, that didn't really happen. Well, so I'm skeptical that that moment yeah, me too. is coming and, and in the short term. I don't disagree with that. And look, fundamentally, his grasp on the Republican Party is pretty ironclad. I mean, look at what is happening in Congress right now. We can't get a border deal because he said no, not because Democrats weren't willing to come to the table with new ideas or tougher ideas, but because he told the Republicans in the House, I don't want this deal. So you're right. And the other thing I will say last night that I worry about for the Republican Party is all of these young Republicans who have now learned, oh, this is politics. This is how we're supposed to do politics, the way we saw it with Tea Partiers who who now are invoking some of those same strategies and tactics. I want to play this moment. President Biden was asked, who he would rather run against Trump or Haley. Take a listen. Who would you rather challenge in November? Nikki Haley or Donald Trump? Oh, I don't care. Um, (laughs) He doesn't care. I don't believe Uh, that. Yeah, he's smart to not answer it. But the answer is he'd rather not run against Nikki Haley. She consistently does outperform Donald Trump. in almost. Although if she were to be the nominee, Donald Trump would take his part of the party and run as an independent or tell them to stay at home. Karen Finney, Kristen Solti-Sanderson, thanks to both of you for being here. Up next, a new series Launching today on The Lead, we're going to dig into America's overwhelming homeless crisis. Why are numbers hitting a record high? What is being done to combat it? Does anything work? We went to California in our first stop to get answers. In our national lead with homelessness in the United States, shooting up to a larger number than ever before seen in the modern era and at a quicker rate than ever before seen today, we're going to try to start to figure out why through our brand new series, Homeless in America. Over the next several months, we're gonna be talking with people across the country directly impacted by this crisis. And today we're gonna start in California, home to 12% of the population of the United States and one third of our homeless population. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass ran on bringing the city's unhoused population indoors and off the streets. We met up with her recently on a very rainy morning where she was trying to do just that. This is the sound of someone's entire life essentially being thrown in the trash. In the middle of recent record-breaking rain in Los Angeles, the city is today clearing an encampment for unhoused people. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass campaigned on fixing the city's homeless crisis. This is, theoretically, 
part of that fix. This is exactly why I ran for mayor. This is the reason why. Mayor Bass took me to see the cleanup firsthand, getting people out of tents and onto buses and into temporary housing. They leave behind anything they cannot carry. I, I was recently stabbed about two weeks ago. This is this like a godsend right now, like getting indoors and being away from this. Inside Safe is the name of Mayor Bass's flagship program to tear down these encampments and bring LA's unhoused indoors. So when I spoke to you um, about a year ago, you talked about your goal for homelessness uh, and the end of homelessness in Los Angeles by the end of your, your first term. Well, I think the progress is going well. We destroyed the myth that people do not want to leave the tents. People don't want to leave the cars and their RVs. We've had the opposite problem. We have more people willing to leave than we have rooms for. In a remarkable new study, researchers at the University of California, San Francisco surveyed thousands of the homeless in California. Nearly 90% of participants said high housing costs were a barrier to their moving into permanent housing. And the majority of those surveyed did want to get off the streets. There are people on the street that don't want to be housed, but most of them do, you know. It's just uh, finding the right housing form in the right situation. Major factors to finding housing are high rents and low income. Then, of course, there's also discrimination and bad credit. Some people don't even have ID. Some have been evicted before. Many are dealing with addiction or struggling with physical or mental health problems. Affordability is definitely the issue, but the shredding of the social safety net over years has resulted in this situation that we have here. So we have to repair that while we repair the human beings that suffer because of it. The number of people experiencing homelessness in a single night went up 12% in the United States in 2023, in part because COVID programs preventing evictions and housing losses came to an end. A quarter of those people were unhoused for the first time in their lives. How many people fell into homelessness during COVID? Before COVID, there were probably about 20 or 30,000 people. Now it's 46,000. Today, this man, Mark, the father of four, is getting out of his tent and into temporary housing nearby. I want to get housed to, to do better for myself and get back in my kid's life. What do you want people out there watching to know about the unhoused community? We're not all drug addicts. We're not all thieves. We're not all uh, people trying to hurt and steal from you. If you see a person down, I think as a human being, it'd be a, a great thing to turn around and bottle of water, maybe a blanket, something you could save their life. Mark's new housing is in these former shipping containers used to build interim housing quickly. Thank you. Thank you. Since the launch of Inside Safe, more than 2,000 people have moved into interim housing, but only 329 have moved into permanent housing. Since Mayor Bass took office, the program has cost L.A. more than $53 million, but the city argues it was well spent and points out the fire department spent nearly $125 million on incidents involving unhoused people last year. There is a misunderstanding about homelessness in this country. Exactly. A lot of people think it's just people with psychological problems or just people with addiction. We have about 9,000 children who are homeless in Los Angeles. Some of them are in and out of school, some of them attend school, but many are living in cars and RVs. One of the fastest growing sectors of the unhoused population 
are senior citizens, people in their 60s and 70s. They get priced out of the market and they wind up unhoused. Even so, California is trying to tackle mental health and substance abuse by implementing care courts to push those who need it off the streets and into treatment. And this is a controversial opinion. I don't think it's okay to be profoundly mentally ill, walking in and out of traffic, and, and be allowed to be there. I think some people might need to be hospitalized and they might need to be hospitalized against their will. And I think it is inhumane to allow people to die on the streets. The short-term solution, get people out of the tents, off the street, out of the cars, into these containers. But this isn't a long-term solution for the problem. No, right? but let me just tell you what short-term is. I think short-term is about a year and a half. And I say that because it takes a while to build housing Unfortunately, the policy de facto had been, you stay on the street while we build something. I think that is completely unacceptable. So what is the solution? Just putting somebody in a house is not enough. There needs to be health care and other social services support, and then they need to go into permanent housing. So this is just our first episode. We're going to continue to cover this homelessness crisis in America on the lead. Our next segment will focus on the mental health component and how effective it is to use these new care courts, court proceedings, to intervene and get care for unhoused people who are struggling with mental health or substance abuse issues. Just into CNN, a tragic update in that search for that missing 11-year-old girl in Texas. Also just coming in, brand new details from the Justice Department about an informant who once claimed to have intelligence about Hunter Biden. Both of those stories, next. We're back with some tragic breaking news. The body of a mis missing girl in Texas has been found. 11-year-old uh, Audrey Cunningham disappeared last Thursday morning. She was on her way to school, to the school bus specifically in Livingston, Texas. Today, her body was located in a river. And a man described as a friend of the family is expected to face capital murder charges. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Livingston, Texas for us. And Rosa, the, the sheriff and district attorney for Polk County, Texas, just, just gave an update. What did they have to say? Well, they gave the disturbing news that this little girl was recovered, but unfortunately, she uh, is dead. And uh, the family, of course, is devastated, and this community is completely devastated. The body of Audrey Cunningham was recovered not too far from here, uh, where I-59 uh, and the Trinity River meet. Now, according to investigators, there is enough evidence to link Don Stephen McDougall um, uh, to this killing. And according to the district attorney and the sheriff, they believe that there is enough evidence linking this man to the killing. They won't go into the details of that, but they did say that they had to lower the water levels of that river to recover the body, that the body was recovered today. And according to the district attorney's office, um, they say that, of course, uh, Texas uh, has uh, capital murder charges and um, that if there is enough evidence to, uh, to um, uh, in this case, um, that they could seek the death penalty. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much. We have uh, more breaking news for you now. The former FBI informant charged with lying about Hunter Biden and President Biden now claims he got dirt on the president's son from Russian intelligence. The bombshell revelation coming in a new court filing. CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Pettis is here. And Evan, walk us through this new information. 
Well, Jake, this is in a filing, a court filing related to Alexander Smirnov. Uh, the Justice Department says that after he was uh, arrested by the FBI last week, uh, he gave an interview in which he said, uh, quote, that uh, he, according to this filing, uh, Smirnov, Smirnov admitted to officials that, that, he, that, he, that the officials associated with Russian intelligence were involved in passing a story about Hunter Biden. Now, uh, Smirnov is the source, uh, Jake, of stories that go back to 2020. What he said uh, to the FBI was that uh, the uh, Burisma, which is a Ukrainian uh, uh, energy company, had offered to pay the then uh, Vice President Biden and Hunter Biden $5 million apiece in order, in exchange for favors, political favors uh, for Burisma. And according to the FBI, that is all false, that, that those stories were, were, were false. And he is now charged with lying to the FBI and with, with falsifying documents. Now, uh, Smirnov is facing, uh, it, it has been arrested, and he is now uh, getting a hearing uh, in Las Vegas where he was arrested. In the next hour, the Justice Department is looking to keep him detained while he faces these charges. Uh, his uh, lawyers are arguing that he should be released uh, while he fights these charges. Jake, right now, uh, the FBI and the Justice Department says that Smirnov is a flight risk because he possesses passports from uh, the United States and Israel and that he has contacts with intelligence agencies uh, in other countries. So right now, the Justice Department is trying to make sure that he stays behind bars while he uh, faces these charges, Jake. All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much for that update. To the world lead now, the United States today vetoed a United Nations re resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. said it would, quote, help not hurt the ongoing sensitive negotiations on the release of the remaining estimated 100 or so living hostages held by terrorists in Gaza still. Instead, the U.S. proposed its own, quote, temporary ceasefire Security Council draft while it falls short of most of the rest of the Security Council's wishes, the draft signals the White House's hardening stance uh, on Israel's four-month leveling of the Gaza Strip. CNN's Jeremy Diamond now brings us a story where he, he follows an emerging social media trend among some Israeli troops documented and sometimes rejoicing in how they are carrying out their orders. This is a how-to video on how to blow up a mosque in Gaza. Format is internet fluent. The content is very real. Filmed, edited, and posted on Instagram by an Israeli soldier. It's one of dozens reviewed by CNN. For many in 2024, social media is everyday life. Israeli soldiers are no different, except they're fighting Israel's largest and most brutal war in decades. In video, after video, after video, soldiers document the destruction of Gaza and rejoice. They film detonations to use as wedding invitations. Among them are would-be comedians, whose videos satirizing the war show the devastation in Gaza. Soldiers have always documented themselves. Uh, it could be in journals, it could be with, um, you know, taking pictures. Avner Gvaryahu served in the IDF during the Second Intifada. 
He leads the group Breaking the Silence, which encourages soldiers to speak out about the realities of occupation. Even if we do find, you know, the, the why we went to this war uh, important, significant, and, 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 and necessity, we have to ask ourselves how we're conducting ourselves uh, in wartime. The videos often end up on the social media channels of right-wing political commentators. They boast to the Israeli public of the tactics used to defend them. The IDF told CNN that it has acted and continues to act to identify unusual cases that deviate from what is expected of IDF soldiers. Those cases will be arbitrated and significant command measures will be taken against the soldiers involved. Images from Gaza of Israel's war injured are rare on Israeli television, but they're there on TikTok. The overarching theme is that, you know, we're here, we're going to win, we're powerful enough. And I think that what these soldiers are doing, all these, these clips that we see on social media, is part of an attempt to regain sense of agency, regain sense of power, regain, you know, the sense of positive self-image, the way we talk about ourselves before October 7th. At times, they openly defy their military's message about protecting civilians. And film themselves destroying civilian shops. Israel is under increasing scrutiny over the war in Gaza. These videos may well be adding fuel to that criticism. And our thanks to producer Mick Creever, who spent hours reviewing social media footage for that piece. These videos are something that the IDF's chief of staff, General Herzi Halevi, is also taking note of. In a letter to commanders today, General Halevi talks about the importance of, quote, maintaining humanity in this war. And he specifically references those videos, saying that soldiers must not take what he calls revenge videos in the field in Gaza. He says we are not on a killing, revenge, or genocide spree. Jake. Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv for us. Thank you for that report. My next guests come from polar opposites of the political spectrum, but what they're doing should set an example for us all. They're launching a mission called Two Dads Defending Democracy, and they are having conversations. Those dads are going to join me here in the studio next. It is striking and not a little dispiriting uh, how divisive the country's political discourse has become in recent years. We've seen Violent consequences as a result, of course, the deadly January 6th insurrection being just one of them. There was obviously a serious attempt to dismantle the nation's democracy that day, fueled by baseless lies, extreme political rhetoric. But that's not the only incident. Political conversations in Congress, on school campuses, at your family dinner table, they don't have to be so polarizing. And two people from opposite sides of the political spectrum are leading by example. Joining us now, former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh and gun violence prevention activist Fred Gutenberg. His 14-year-old daughter, Jamie, uh, was one of the 17 killed in the Parkland High School mass shooting in 2018. Um, Joe and Fred, this, this all started because you guys would bicker on Twitter uh, with each other. And now you're on a mission, which kicks off tomorrow, yeah. the Two Dads Defending Democracy Tour showing how people can find common ground on heated issues. Why now? So almost, it'll be this Father's Day, it'll be three years ago. Um, Joe reached out. Uh, we used to go back and forth on Twitter. Much worse than bicker. 
Yeah. <laughs> mainly uh, on guns or on everything? Guns. It's, guns. Mainly yeah. on guns. And I was starting this initiative, wanting to get dads more involved in the effort to do something about gun violence. And he ended up reaching out saying, you know, I respect what you're trying to do here. And it led to a off-Twitter conversation between us that led to me meeting him and his beautiful wife for dinner one night here in D.C. and drinks. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's become one of my favorite people in the world. (laughs) You know, Um, we get along. We disagree. We talk. We we banter, but we also debate. And I think it was uh, about a year ago, we... Um, we're at a conference together, and we talked about the relationship. And it all has evolved to the point where now tomorrow at the University of Delaware's uh, Biden, uh, Biden School. Center, mm. Biden School, um, they're going to host the start of a conversation that we want to take across the country. Because, we're, listen, we have 10 months to show America you don't have to hate people you disagree with. Jake, you asked why now. Here's the why now. No matter who wins in November, this country is going to be exhausted. I think a hundred times more divided and looking for something. We're at a point where, and you said it, our, our political opponents have become our mortal enemies, people we want to destroy. That's how Fred and I used to be when we would go at it about guns. And then we got to know each other. I'm a big gun rights guy, big gun safety guy. We actually found a little bit of common ground. We did. But, you know, I I said to Joe the other day, I said, the crazy thing about the two of us is we don't talk about disagreements on guns anymore. We're so committed, the two of us, to agreeing. Our disagreements aren't gone, but we're both committed to a bigger cause right now, which is defending democracy. Mm -hmm. And, and, And it is really, listen, there are very few people I enjoy talking to about all the political issues more than you. And and I just think we're at a time where we can show yeah. two dads who disagree I but issues. want people to vote. But, okay, so it's easy for you to disagree on. It's easy for you guys to talk about stuff you agree on, right? I yes. mean, so here's my question. Yeah. How do you talk to people out there who want to engage in respectful debates but don't know how or they struggle to do so or they see the other side as yeah. evil or worse, what do you tell them to do? Because obviously you guys, I'm sure you agree on some things, but you probably still disagree on a lot. We disagree on the vast majority of public policy issues. Right. Obviously, we agree on who we'd like to win in November. Um, but, but Jake, it's, it's, we don't even engage with the other side right now. Uh, again, the why now? I, this democracy is teetering. And if we don't learn how to at least listen to people we disagree with, I don't think the democracy is going to stand. That's what's driving me in this thing. And, and the main start is we have to listen to people we disagree with two and years not ago, want to destroy Two them. years ago, you invited me and Chris Brown of Brady on your podcast. Oh, my gosh. On your podcast. Yeah. And so to answer your question, like over a very, I think we went well over an hour. We went through all of the issues we disagree with. On we guns. talked them out. On guns. You know, things that background checks. Joe was ready to go further than me on that, but he disagrees with me on 21. He still does, and I'm still going to change his on mind. On raising the age of guns. Yeah, gun and I'm still going to change his mind on that. But we, we talked no, it we out. No, we won't, Jake. But we <laughs> talked it out. Yeah. 
But it's not easy for a lot of people to talk it out. I mean, that's one of the things. They don't even want to sit down. Look at Congress right now. There's obviously a compromise. Let's just talk about immigration, yeah. right? I bet you yeah. guys disagree on immigration. Yes. Um, there's obviously a compromise there. Langford and Cinema and Murphy worked hard to get that compromise, more conservative than anything that's been put forward as a compromise on immigration and the border that I've ever seen. And Republicans just wouldn't even well, have it. They well, wouldn't even have it because right. lots of reasons. One of them is Donald, Trump, to vote Donald Trump wants it as an issue. Other people thought it wasn't strong enough. As a former member of Congress, they're incentivized not to do what we're Well, that's exactly about. it. Right. They're completely incentivized or they'll get primaried and they'll lose, which is why Fred and I think, Jake, this has got to start with the American people. The American people have to learn how to do this. Right now, most of the American people are where Fred and I were four years ago, going at each other with everything. The Republicans respond to one person right now, unfortunately. Right. That and, is unfortunate. And, and, and your fellow it, Floridian, um, Donald yeah. Trump, <laughs> I mean, right. lives up the road, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but that is yeah. not good for democracy. And, and so my hope is they get back to doing the work of the American people and not the former president. And honestly, America, if you don't like what's happening there now, Get out and vote in 24. We're going to get out there and model how to do this for people. Mm -hmm. um, and Jake, look, I come from the right. The right is further down this divisive road. But most of America is on the same road. Well, the left is pretty The left, can, you know, obviously it's all up to yeah. individuals. But there could, there's some pretty nasty stuff out there Agreed. on the left. Yes. Agreed. Yes. But it's not the entire party. Right. That's the difference. Right. Yep. So. Right, but we're on the same. I mean, we're all on the same road, and it's a dangerous road to be on. We have to listen to each other. Even Jake, if we don't find common ground, and you and I haven't found common ground on most of the stuff. Listen, I will tell you, mm -hmm. I'm going to vote for President Biden. He's decent. He believes in democracy. <laughs> the other guy is indecent, and he doesn't believe in democracy. Well, this is an issue where you guys agree. That's yes, we do. We agree. Right, but there's other stuff that I'm more interested in. The stuff you disagree on because that's <laughs> because that's what's tearing up the country not you guys no, you know, exactly. no the fact that we can actually talk about, about what we agree and disagree on yeah. is what matters all right well it's great having Thanks, you here sure. and good luck with uh, def dads defending democracy tour it's good to have you joe walsh and fred gutenberg's uh, two dads defending democracy tour kicks off tomorrow at the university of delaware's biden school just up by 95. Thanks to both of you. Good to see you. Coming up, Beyonce and the Beatles. How about that for a combo? Big headlines on them both today. Our pop culture lead now, Beyonce's venture into country music is officially a hit. This ain't Texas. Ain't no hold'em. Her new song, Texas Hold'em, debuted in the top spot of Billboard's Hot Country Songs chart. Her song, 16 Carriages, ranks number nine on the chart. Beyonce is the first woman to top both the hot country and hot R&B hip-hop charts since the lists began in 1958. Speaking of music way back when, Variety reports that Hollywood is cooking up four separate movies about the Beatles. That's four, each told from the point of view of one of the Fab Four. Those films are due in 2027. In the meantime, you're just going to have to let it be, I suppose. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.